0: all the way to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it opens with a message from the Lord through John to the seven churches of Asia Minor and the threat that Jesus Christ gives to those visible churches is that he will remove the lampstand, the light will go out as an act of judgment if they don't get their house in order. Now so consider, there are few subjects stressed more strongly in Scripture than the unalterable reality that God... This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. We began a study in the book of Obadiah, a very short book in the Old Testament. And uh, we looked at the first 14 verses, the last Uh, Lord's Day evening service that we had together. And uh, tonight, we want to look at the rest of this book, namely verses 15 through 21. The title of the message, God Declares Victory. And I'm going to pick up in verse 15, if you'll follow along. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask him for his help this evening as we look at this text together. Father, we thank you for the blessed scriptures which reveal truth to us, truth to us that we need to hear. We need to hear it in our own day. We need to hear that the Lord reigns supreme over all things. And so we pray that that might be the message that touches our hearts and touches our souls as we conclude our study of this minor prophetic book, Obadiah. Be with us and your spirit with us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you have studied history in school, you are aware that VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, stands for Victory in Europe, which really celebrates the formal acceptance of Germany's unconditional surrender um, of its armed forces um, to the Allies. This took place on Tuesday, May 8th, 1945. This unconditional surrender was enforced at 11.01 p.m. on May the 8th, Central European time, but this time corresponded to 12.01 um, On Moscow time, on May the 9th, so the Soviet Union and now Russia celebrate victory over Germany on May 9th, not, as we celebrate it, May 8th. VE Day reminds us of how good will ultimately triumph over evil, that Hitler's hostile forces of evil have been defeated, and that's what we recognize on May the 8th, but similarly, We await the final day of the Lord to see the defeat of his foes, described in the Bible as the nations, and typified in Obadiah's prophecy by the nation of Edom in particular. But just like the dates of VE Day appear different, depending on which side of the world you are on, May 8th or May 9th respectively, the reality of VE Day as an allied victory doesn't change. And so too... Does the entire fulfillment of the events described by Obadiah depend upon which side you choose to look at them regarding the lens of biblical interpretation, but the substance of what the events represent do not change. So when we speak about biblical interpretation, especially when it comes to prophetic sections and even more so and more particularly those of the Old Testament variety, we have what is called a near fulfillment and what is called a far fulfillment. So the timing of prophetic events can be challenging, sometimes risky, and even erroneous, theologically speaking, if we get them wrong. Well, Obadiah's prophetic message corresponds really to all other prophecies in Scripture and that it uses real nations and real people of ancient history to then touch upon the events of the last days. And I'll remind you that we're already living in the last days. Hebrews chapter one, God has spoken to us through his son and these last days. And Obadiah's prophecy not only speaks about our days and the last days of our days, but also what we might call the last days of the last days. In other words, Obadiah's prophecy has a thoroughly Christian application for us today, as well as generations to come. So it has a far fulfillment, that is a future fulfillment. On the other hand, Obadiah's prophecies also had application for the people of Obadiah's day, as well as for the future generations of Obadiah, and thus it has a nearer fulfillment as well. As one commentator has written, Obadiah's message, though it is surely about ethnic Israel and Edom, it is at the same time more generally about God's people and the worldly powers that are opposed to. To God. And and I think that that is very, very accurate. This means that Israel, as we read the book of Obadiah, Israel really represents God's people. As Paul says in Galatians, Peace and mercy be upon the Israel of God. He is writing to the new covenant church. So Israel represents God's people of all time. Edom represents then the nations of the world, all other people that reject Christ's lordship. And this is reflected in the New Testament usage of the word Gentiles, which is used to refer to the nations. And Paul speaks this way, for example, in Romans 2, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So if it's true that, as Paul says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, then its corollary is also true that no one is a Gentile who is merely one outwardly. And there are other examples in the Bible that uses language this way. For example, if you read the book of Revelation, a book that speaks about prophecies, Babylon refers to Rome. Or you can read in places in scripture in which Egypt is symbolically or metaphorically describing any foreign or spiritual captivity. And even that word exiles is a typification of earthly trials. Peter uses that word this way in 1 Peter 1. He speaks to Christians of the new covenant and he says that they are exiles in this world. And even the word Jerusalem is equated with heaven itself in Hebrews 12 and verse 22. As one commentator writes, and this is very important, Obadiah's message, like all prophecies touching on the New Age, has a Christian implication. Though it is surely about Israel and Edom, is it, is it at the same time more generally about God's people and the worldly powers opposed to God? The Christian, therefore, will see in Obadiah's prophecy not merely a description of certain political realities and hopes from the 6th century B.C. in Palestine, but also the more general reality and hope of God's intervention on behalf of his people to rescue them from helplessness in the face of mortal danger and to guarantee them a bright future of reward for their faithfulness. The success of earthly powers arrayed against God's purposes can be only temporary and the ultimate victory of God's people is assured. And I don't know about you, but that is comforting for me to read that. Now we need to be careful when we speak, about the nation of Israel of our own day. You're familiar with the reconstitution of Israel's independence as a Jewish state as they returned to the original promised land. And the General Assembly of the United Nations adopted a resolution that was later um, activated in May of 1948. In part, this national council representing the Jewish people in Palestine proclaimed this... Our call goes out to the Jewish people all over the world to rally to our side in the task of immigration and development and to stand by us in the great struggle for the fulfillment of the dream of generations, the redemption of Israel. With trust in Almighty God, we set our hand to this declaration. But those Israelites do not recognize Jesus as Savior. And what's more, when they returned to the land, they evolved into a secular state. And as Western values crumble and conservatism is sort of a thing of the past, they are a people hardly representing the original Israel established by God. And they may exist in the Middle East, but they look to the West and in particular the United States as a model. But we too as the United States are a far cry from the Christian values originally used to establish our nation. And so as we read the prophecy of Obadiah, you need to understand that the regathering of Israel in the 20th century is not the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Now it may be a partial fulfillment of prophecy in some sense, only time will tell regarding that, but these questions and more really arise from any study of the prophetic books. Now last time we saw in verses 1 through 14 God's declaration of war. And I don't want to spend a long time on this, but we saw that the history began with Jacob and Esau, Esau's descendants, which became the Edomites, Jacob's descendants, which became Israel. Historically, Edom boasted of its wealth and its mountain fortresses in which they hid their treasures that they stole from raiding caravans, uh, places like the city of Petra. And it was the sin of pride that marked them. They were like their father, the devil, And so Obadiah promises, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that they will be brought low by God in verses 1 through 14. This meant, as we saw, the total devastation of this nation, the total collapse of their nation by other invading nations, a targeted conspiracy involving other nations that they were allies with who would turn on them. And we mentioned that this was a demonstration of God's poetic justice. That his poetic justice would come from heaven. It would rain down judgment on the Edomites with the operative principle of lex talianus. That principle simply means an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and the punishment fits the crime. And God judged the Edomites. Why? Because they took joy in trapping, fleeing Israelites. When the Babylonians had laid siege to Jerusalem in 586 B.C., they took joy in that and they trapped those Israelites. And so God, through the prophet Obadiah, says that he will degrade them, he will punish them, he will embarrass them on what he calls the day of the Lord, which is a concept in the Old Testament to describe a day where God's judgment comes. And all of that brings us now to verses 15 through 21. We've seen God's declaration of war, and tonight we want to look at God's declaration of victory. Because in verses 15 through 21, we see that God's declaration of victory involves three elements that we must draw our, our attention to because these elements are true not just of the 6th century and what happened to the Edomites. These are elements that are true for the future day of the Lord. And these are elements that are true that are applicable to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Israel of God. God's declaration of victory always involves these three elements. It matters not what period of church history you are talking about. It matters not where in the Old Testament you speak about or where in uh, the future you speak about. These three elements are present. What are they? The three elements of God's victory. Number one is vengeance. We see that in verses 15 and 16, God's vengeance. Secondly, deliverance, verses 17 and 18. And then third, resurgence, verses 19 through 21. Now, let me just state at the beginning, before we even dig into the text, that our focus, as is appropriate, will be on the application of this passage for us and future generations, using this ancient text as a sort of launching pad to understand several things. Number one, to understand God's reign over the nations. Number two, to understand God's judgment of the nations, to understand the final day of the Lord, ushering in the consummated kingdom, as Paul describes it, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five. for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And so my prayer this past week has been that your hearts may be encouraged this evening. We may feel like a little flock. We may feel like sheep wandering around in this world, but there is a reigning King of Kings and Lord of Lords and his vengeance will be a reality. The deliverance of his people will be a reality and the resurgence of his people leading up to the consummated kingdom is also a fact that I believe Christians Need to recognize. So let's look at these three elements. The first element of God's declaration of victory is vengeance. Vengeance. We see this in verses 15 and 16. Notice verse 15, it begins, For the day of the Lord is near upon, notice carefully, all the nations. Now, as I said, the day of the Lord is a is a common prophetic uh, slogan that refers generally to Yahweh's sovereign intervention, militarily sometimes, politically at all times, in which he unleashes his vengeance. For example, Jeremiah 46.10, That day is the day of the Lord, the God of hosts, a day of vengeance, says Jeremiah, to avenge himself on his foes. That is the day of the Lord. If you take your Bibles and turn back with me to Amos chapter five, we see this language being used beginning in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? In other words, um, Amos is saying the same thing that Obadiah is saying. The darkness of God's judgment is a reality for the day of the Lord. Now, there are many places in the Old Testament that speak about the day of the Lord. Perhaps just one more we can speak about, Zephaniah chapter 3. And uh, verse number eight, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord for the day when I rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So such judgment on the day of the Lord, you need to recognize is typified in Edom, in our context, but it's also against all the nations, just as we read in Zephaniah 3.18. And now the rest of verse 15 explains how God's vengeance against the nations begins. It begins with Edom, and and notice your Bibles, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to you, and your deeds shall return on your own head. As you have done. It shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is the vengeance of the Lord. But this is even New Testament language. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Paul says, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is God's vengeance we're speaking about. All God's judgments are just vengeance, which typify His final judgment, in which He will reverse evil, He will establish good on a worldwide scale. That's the application of this passage. Isaiah thirteen eleven. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. That is true about all wicked nations. That is true about all wicked people. Edom simply typifies what is true about all nations. And that is why verse 15 says that the day of the Lord is near for all nations. In the context, the very things Edom did to others, God will do to them. And we see that that entails metaphorical language. Notice with me in verse 16. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations, there's that language of plurality again, all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. This is a metaphor A difference obviously exists between drinking, which is biblically allowable, and drunkenness, which is not biblically permissible. And so God, through the prophet Obadiah, metaphorically draws a contrast between drinking and drunkenness. Drinking, which can be classified as temporary pleasure... And, and the Bible even says is desirable and commendable. For example, Psalm 104 says that God causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and wine that maketh glad the heart of man. Or Paul told Reverend Timothy, "No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments." But drunkenness is forbidden by God, Galatians 5:21. Because, listen to this: it is destructive, and it can actually be fatal. But get this, God's judgment on the Edomites, all the nations will get figuratively drunk, they will, at God's request and ordered for him to enact lex talionis or his poetic justice. Notice the language of verse 16 again. For as you drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. For as you drunk on my holy mountain, this refers to Edom's glee. When Jerusalem fled from the Babylonians, they, they fled the protection of Jerusalem. They, they tried to go to the, the hills where the Edomites lived, and the Edomites trapped them. As God's people flee, Edom looks on with glee. They had this temporary pleasure. They were drunk on the suffering of God's people. And as Edom joyfully drank down the pleasure of watching Israel being destroyed, so too other nations and wicked people rejoice in evil. That's the point of verse 16. But so too, says Obadiah, maybe they got drunk on my holy mountain. But notice verse 16. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. You know what that means? It means that Edom and all nations typified by Edom will gulp down God's cup of wrath until they are drunk and die and are wiped out. As the verse says, as though they had never been. Jeremiah, who I believe was a contemporary to Obadiah, puts it this way in Lamentations 4.21, The cup shall be passed to you, Edom, and you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. In other words, you're going to embarrass yourself. So verses 15 and 16 are God's announcement through the prophet of God's divine retribution. Tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, lex talionis, that sin is like a boomerang. What we do to others comes back and is done to us by God. Verse 15 again, as you have done, it shall be done to you. This is poetic justice, just as one line in a poem parallels the next. Jack and Jill ran up the hill. So too does God's punishment run parallel to sin. This is the principle of Galatians 6-7. It is a universal principle. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. And God's vengeance in accomplishing poetic justice was real. We read in the Bible from the book of Jeremiah that it was Nebuchadnezzar, the same one that sacked Jerusalem, who was the one who plundered and pillaged the Edomites, resulting in their exile years later. And then it was Judas Maccabees who fought the Edomites. And 20 years later, Simon Maccabees. And 20 years later, Simon's son, forcing the Edomites to embrace circumcision and to accept Jewish law. And yet throughout history, just as Esau fought Jacob, the Edomites, The descendants of Esau fought Israel to their death like Hitler in the bunker. And in AD 70, when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem, the zealots, that is the the militia force of the Israelites, foolishly sent for the Edomites as a backup force, and the plan backfired. The Edomites actually contributed to the pain of Jerusalem with some 20,000 Edomites infiltrating the city. But eventually, God's poetic justice won out. Because the Edomites perished with the Jews as Rome was Rome sacked Jerusalem and the Edomites were never heard from again. This is the vengeance of God. When God seeks to demonstrate his vengeance, he never fails. He has an undefeated, untarnished record. Now, obviously, this passage applies to us in three different ways. First of all, God's vengeance, His divine retribution, has to do with His national judgment. If you notice in your text, later on in verse 19, there are several nations listed. And in verse 15, it's speaking to all the nations. Verse 16, all the nations. And then it lists some in verse 19. So what makes the United States feel as if we are exempt? from the vengeance of God causes us to think long and hard about the state of our nation. But there's a second application because there is a personal vengeance of God, a personal judgment. What is true nationally is also true individually and personally. Hebrews nine 27. It is appointed unto man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. So there is a national judgment, vengeance of God, There is a personal vengeance of God, and there's also an ecclesiastical vengeance of God. Going all the way to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it opens with a message from the Lord through John to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and the threat that Jesus Christ gives to those visible churches is that he will remove the lampstand. The light will go out as an act of judgment if they don't get their house in order. So consider there are few subjects stressed more strongly in Scripture than the unalterable reality that God is judge. A.W. Tozer once said, and I quote The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all unpleasant forms of iniquity, thinking, drinking until drunk. While death draws near, Every day nearer and nearer, and the command to repent goes unheeded. I read Hebrews 9 27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. But it's also true that, first of all, God's judgment isn't just future, the day of the Lord can refer to divine retribution personally, nationally, ecclesiastically. God is still sovereign. God is still on his throne and God has not changed regardless of the nation, regardless of the people. And secondly, with judgment comes hope. God's justice is not pure meanness. It's always mixed with mercy. Hebrews 9.27, yeah, it's appointed unto man to die once and after this the judgment. But Hebrews 9.28 continues the thought of verse 27. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, national revival is just like personal revival. It begins and ends with the proclamation of the gospel. That God is a judge not merely of individuals. He is a God who judges nations and the church visible as a means to discipline his people, to purify his people. And so we should not think that because Obadiah is the shortest book of the Old Testament, that it has no application. (laughs) The vengeance that is described is to all nations in this passage. God's worldwide Declaration of victory, therefore, includes, number one, vengeance. But secondly, it includes deliverance. And here is where we turn from the negative to the positive. The deliverance is described in verses 17 and 18. Vengeance on his enemies, yes, but deliverance for his people. Verse 17, notice the text. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Verse 17 begins with the word but, which stands in contrast to the negative vengeance of God spoken about before it. Mark well the buts of the Bible, because they are the hinges on which great events and doctrines turn. And here is one of them. God's vengeance is a reality, but so is his deliverance. And here the prophet Obadiah encourages Israel that their enemies will be cut down and Israel will be lifted up. It's the language used of Mount Zion. And Mount Zion represents God's people who will rise like a mountain of blessing, while Mount Esau will dwarf her in comparison and be brought low because of her pride. Verses 3-9 through speaks about the fact that she will be brought low. She felt like, Edom felt like she was an eagle nesting high. God says, I will bring you down. Mount Zion is where God dwells among his people. And there the shepherd stands with his sheep, gathering them, protecting them, feeding them, all of those who take refuge under the shadow of his wings. So Mount Zion prefigures, listen to this, Mount Calvary, the mountain of victory. And it prefigures the Mount of Olives where scripture says the feet of Jesus will land upon his return to judge. So that verse 17, when speaking about Mount Zion, is saying that in Christ, because of Mount Zion and Mount Calvary, his people will be delivered from God's wrath. So that the gospel is about the justice of God, but it's also about the mercy of God. It is about the vengeance of God, but it is also about the deliverance of God of God, victory over sin, death, and the devil. And such deliverance comes to those of all nations who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn back with me to Isaiah 2. I told you at the beginning that I want the application of this message to be for you tonight. What does the Bible say? Isaiah 2, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days... That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. That's Mount Zion. It shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is the universal reign of Christ. Verse 4 He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let me put it to you this way B.C. Zion, Zion of the Old Testament, was a foretaste of A.D. Zion. That is all those gathered around the new and greater temple, which is Jesus Christ, God come in human flesh. What did Jesus say in John chapter two? Destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. And John says he was speaking about the temple of his body. Hebrews 12, But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gathering. The author of Hebrews says, We have already come to Mount Zion. That Mount Zion is figurative, therefore, for a spiritual people, not a geographical place. That is made clear in the rest of verse 17. Notice the text. In Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. That's similar language to Isaiah 2, which I just read. Mount Zion in the first line of verse 17 runs parallel then with the house of Jacob in the second line. This is the family of Jacob. Now, who is the family of Jacob? Well, according to the New Testament, Galatians 3, 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. All spiritual sons of Abraham through Christ, verse 17 is saying, shall be those who escape God's judgment, God's vengeance. As verse 17 indicates, and will be delivered and thus shall be holy. When it says there shall be those who escape, that is remnant language. There will be a remnant of holy people, the seed of which originally were Israelites, the apostles, but that seed is now grown into the body of Christ, the church of the new covenant, so that we are holy temple dwellers, if you will, on Mount Zion. Today, right now, as Numbers nineteen twenty indicated, every unclean person in the Old Testament defiled the sanctuary of the Lord but not true with the Mount Zion of the New Covenant. Ultimately, Mount Zion, therefore, symbolizes the universal rule, the imperial power of Christ. But this is a leavening process. Christ rules now, but someday all nations will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This goes back to what I said at the beginning. There is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And this future fulfillment is found in that last phrase, the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. This applies to the Israel of Obadiah's day, but it also applies to the Israel of the new covenant. Ethnic Israel, as it's easy to call them, were promised deliverance and an inheritance. The house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And that was true. God kept his word. When you read the Old Testament, the Edomites were defeated. The Philistines were defeated. The Babylonians were defeated. And Israel returned to the land and built the temple. You've read Ezra and Nehemiah, right? The restoration of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls, the policy of Zerubbabel, allowing the Jews to return between 537 B.C. and 515 B.C. But it has a future application for today, for all of God's people. Because when you read the New Testament, it speaks about us being delivered from our bondage to sin. And its power that we have received a spiritual inheritance. We, like the creation, await our final holiness, our glorification. Uh, Peter puts it this way: First Peter one four. We have an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. An inheritance—that's language of something we possess by virtue of being the children of God, the the children of God, the family of Jacob. And of course, you're you're familiar with Romans chapter eight. This speaks very poignantly about the redemption of creation and not only the creation Paul says in Romans 8:23 but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies that is the resurrection that is when we are finally glorified that is when we are perfectly and purely holy and so verse 17 Speaking about the house of Jacob that shall possess their own possessions is speaking about us. Our spiritual inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are, after all, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. First Peter two nine. And we are to realize, therefore, that we possess Christ and Christ possesses us. So in light of that. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light because we have been delivered from the day of the Lord, a day of darkness and gloom. And we are called to tell others that they too can be delivered. They too can be possessed by the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I've quoted Peter so many times tonight. We might as well just turn there. Turn with me to First Peter chapter 2. Because after speaking about the fact that uh, we are a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, which means Peter absolutely understood Old Testament prophecy to be realized in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse 11, beloved, I urge you notice this language as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. (laughs) Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the nations, that is unbelievers. Keep it honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, beloved, there is no worldwide peace that will come through United Nations diplomacy or a European Union policy or law passed by Congress. Now, Christians should care about politics and policies and pray for a mere Christendom to come. But that prayer is really a prayer that Jesus commanded us to pray when Jesus said, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And on earth, in order for the kingdom to be ushered in, There must be holiness in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There must be the bowing of the knee of nations to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There can be no king if there aren't biblical policies. And there is only one king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is his law that will be established and should be established. And so you say to yourself, what does this mean for us? Well, in short, it means fingertip theology. Our great sin is admiring God's word instead of applying God's word. It's sort of like a man who has a vast library and all he does is sit and look at the books and reads them, puts them on the shelf and never applies that knowledge. We are called as the people of God to be an agent of change in this world because of the promise of our deliverance and the ingathering of the nations now before we move to the third point i want you to note verse 18 quickly because obadiah returns to his thought about god's judgment and i will just stop here briefly verse 18 the house of jacob shall be a fire and the house of joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, that's Edom, for the Lord has spoken. Just as stubble burns and is consumed by fire and a flame, so will Edom be no more. There will be no survivor. God's poetic justice will be enacted because Edom enjoyed Jerusalem being sieged and set ablaze, And so Obadiah says, don't you worry, you're going to be delivered. God's vengeance is going to come to Edom and all the nations. And notice verse 18, it ends with, for the Lord has spoken. We have it on the authority of God's word that Edom and all the nations that Edom typifies will be subdued ultimately by the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Israel, God's people will ultimately be delivered salvifically and personally and politically and eternally. That is the force of this passage. So God's declaration of victory is no minor thing. It always has three elements. Number one, the element of vengeance. Number two, the element of deliverance. So God's justice is not meanness, it is mercy. Because he offers salvation, vengeance, deliverance, and finally the best part for last, there will be resurgence. Now I want you to look at verses 19 through 21 with me. Because instead of God's people being scattered among the nations, the nations will be scattered and God's people expanded, growing to take over new territories. Notice verse 19. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. That's the promised land. As far as Zarephath, which wasn't conquered until David. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. The B.C., promised land prefigured the new and greater p- promised land of the new creation hebrews 11:16 the hall of faith is a list full of people who desired and i quote a better country that is a heavenly one and here verses 19 through 20 as new testament christians we must understand this is speaking about the kingdom of god The glorious reality of the kingdom of God that will be established on earth and continue into eternity. And what marks it is this resurgence of the people of God, the Israel of God, overtaking the world, overtaking territories in the name of Christ. Notice the language again, verse 19. They will possess Mount Esau. That is Edom. That typifies all nations. But Obadiah is not content with that. He says also the land of the Philistines and Ephraim and Samaria and Gilead. He speaks about the exiles of God's people that will inherit and possess the earth. Even that first promise to our father Abraham, the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath, the cities of Negeb too. Let me put it to you this way. God will recover the lands on every map in the back of your Bible and every map in your vehicle. Jesus, the King of Kings, will rule from coastland to coastland, going through the heartland. And verse 21 is shocking. Notice your Bibles. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is the kingdom of God, which you and I are in. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule. Mount Esau, that is the nations, because Esau is Edom, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Wow. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Did you forget Psalm 2, which was read at the beginning? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He sits in the heavens on his throne. He has always been sovereign king. But verse 21 is telling us there is a near fulfillment in which Israel, ethnic Israel, will return to the land but there is a far greater, far fulfillment in Christ in the new covenant, a new creation because of the gospel where Jesus Christ reigns over the nations from Mount Zion. The last day's reign does not begin with the second coming of Christ. It began with his first coming. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. The reign of Christ market was inaugurated through the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the glorious ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then finally consummated at his second coming in glory. And in between the time of the visible and physical second coming of Christ, verse 21 is telling us are all sorts of saviors. Now, it's a capital S in your English Bibles because it's the first word of the sentence, but in reality, it's a lowercase s because there's only one savior. But there will be saviors who are types and shadows of the real savior. Just think about the Old Testament that had types and shadows. And those kings were shadows of the true king to come. And what Obadiah is saying is that until we await the arrival of King Jesus, he will reign. But there will be saviors who will arise and go up to Mount Zion. And verse 21 says the kingdom is shall be the Lord's. These saviors will remind us of Christ, the shepherd king of Israel. Psalm twenty two, verse twenty eight, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. What is the preacher who had beautiful feet in Isaiah fifty two? What does the preacher of Isaiah fifty two say to Zion? He says, your God reigns. So what right do we have to speak of a mere Christendom or Christian nationalism? Well, let me just tell you. If ever there was a verse allowing for and indeed encouraging prayer for godly princes, kings and presidents and statesmen, it's verse twenty one. That saviors shall go up to Mount Zion. Why wouldn't you pray that way? Can you give a good reason? The church must pray for a revival even as the church preaches the gospel. Because in verses 19 through 21, Obadiah is simply promising a resurgence of Israel. A resurgence of God's people. Israel redeemed and resurrected and the new creation through Christ, her elder brother, descendants of Jacob. We live in that age and our optimism must be in the power of the gospel and our commission is to baptize the nations. The Bible speaks a lot about the nations. So why would we be turned off by the labels Christian nationalism or mere Christendom? Either we believe verse 21 or we don't. Which promises the kingdom shall be the Lord's, or to put it the way Paul put it, for he must reign until all enemies are made his footstool. So I have a secret to tell you tonight. I have a problem with so called pilgrim theology. Now you can breathe. I don't think that pilgrim's progress is rank heresy. But can I suggest a warning? If we are not careful, we can live more by the principle, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, than this principle, Christ is Lord. Which principle sounds better? This world is just my home, I'm just a passing through, or Christ is Lord. You see, we need to be careful that we are not so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. So, okay, I get it, Bunyan, we are pilgrims. But we're not just pilgrims. We've been promised that with Christ and with the help of Christ and because of Christ, we will inherit not just heaven, but the world over. Jesus says, pray this way. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The growth of the kingdom takes time. So do you have generational patience? Well, let's close by considering Jacob and Esau. Because that's how we began this series, if you remember. We gave a summary of Jacob and Esau and their descendants. Esau, a favorite of his father, a man of the outdoors, a hunter. He leaves home and he raises an army. What a manly thing to do. His descendants, Genesis 36 tell us, became kings. Jacob, on the other hand, was the favorite of his mother. A man of the outdoors, but a man of the outdoors that carried a staff, not a sword. He was a shepherd. And while Esau and the, his descendants prospered, they boasted that they were better than Jacob and his children and the Edomites constantly, as an older brother would do, picked on the little brother Jacob. But Jacob had one thing that no army of Eden, Edom could conquer. That was the promise and the blessing of God through Father Isaac. He was a man who lived by faith. It took generations. And get this. Jacob was dead and gone. It took many battles, several exiles from Jacob all the way to Jesus' day. They were still in captivity to the Romans. And the Edomites still a thorn in their side. But nothing could thwart God's plans. You see, sometimes it is true we feel more like pilgrims and sojourners, like Jacob. We feel like we're walking around with a staff and the world has a sword. We're kind of like the guy who brought a fork to a gunfight. We feel that way. But Obadiah says, in effect, you are pilgrims, but don't be content there. Go and fight with patience and faith. Build, grow, work, pray, preach, and repeat. And why, you say? Because Jesus has come, and the day of the Lord is approaching. The kingdom shall be the Lord's, verse 21, for he must reign until he has made all his enemies a footstool. This past week, me and my boys remodeled our upstairs, laid wood floors in, put bookcases up all around the room so I could move my library up there. And as we began the work, late Sunday night, it began easy as we began to rip the carpet up. And boy, did my boys have a fun time ripping the carpet up. It was easy. It was fun. It was destructive. You could have a hammer and a, and a screwdriver. And so that was the easy part. But then came the hard part, the putting it back together, making sure everything was level, making sure everything was straight. And we learned one principle. Measure twice and only cut once. Because if you measure once, you'll cut twice. The patience, the labor, the meticulous nature of that to get things right, to look forward and see where things will be. You see, the resurgence of God's people is beginning now, but it is a leavening process. So let us prepare the way as the church by working and laboring and preaching and trusting so that when Jesus comes, we can give him a red carpet welcome. Because it ultimately comes down to a matter of faith. And you can't be standing on the promises if you're sitting on the premises. Because he's already declared his victory. So let us win. In other words, let me put it to you this way D Day has happened. The allies of God's army, of many nations, of every tribe, tongue, and people, have landed on the coasts. Satan is bound, Satan is hiding. God's people are marching and they will not stop marching from coast to coast through the heartland until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's why we march forth in battle, because we know our king has already won. So we labor, we fight, we pray, we preach and we repeat to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for this wonderful book. What a glorious Lord's Day to conclude a study in 3 John and now to conclude our study in Obadiah. These are books, Lord, that are often neglected and overlooked, but, Lord, we feel that we've been fed by your Spirit. We've been encouraged tonight to know that you are the reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us in the weakness of our faith to trust in you. Help us to pray with faith, Thy kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.Christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.